Well, good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? It's really uh, such a joy to be here. I think it's uh, one of my favorite things to do, to come up and, and be with you all here in San Jose. Uh, I know we're not supposed to show partiality, but uh, I, I will say Lighthouse San Jose is one of my four favorite churches in the world. And uh, I'll say that Pastor Mark is one of my, one of my three favorite pastors and preachers uh, in the planet. And uh, I'm just so thrilled to be here. It's been really sweet to be able to uh, see some familiar faces and, and uh, meet uh, some new ones and, and uh, spend time with you. I wish we had more time together. I'm heading back down to San Diego uh, tomorrow morning, but uh, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, we'll have more opportunities to do this. Uh, everything in San Diego is, is, is going great. Uh, you know, it's San Diego, so the weather's amazing. And uh, we've been enjoying outdoor services. We have this huge kind of outdoor area, and uh, you could be praying for us. It's insane, uh, just in this time of pandemic and, and all of that. Uh, we recently installed our, our, well, Tide for our biggest membership class ever, uh, and uh, it's just been really a blessing, uh, just families coming out, and I think we have over 500 people meeting outside right now, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been uh, huge. And one of the things that we've been doing is working through the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. I hope you didn't uh, listen or to the sermon last week or you weren't visiting San Diego last week because it's the same sermon as last week. Uh, usually when I go preach at places, uh, the pastor will ask, you know, what's on your heart? And for me, that's usually what I preach last. And so Ephesians chapter 1 has been on my heart, and uh, it's an amazing, amazing chapter. We just wrapped up the, the first chapter of Ephesians, and I told the church in San Diego, I kind of want to just cycle back and do it again. Uh, I would love to just preach through Ephesians 1 again. Uh, it's such a rich chapter, so chock full of amazing doctrine and uh, helpful passages of Scripture. So Ephesians chapter 1, just for the sake of context, I'm going to read starting in verse 15, and then we'll pray, okay? This is God's Word. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? In accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, in authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why don't we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this time together. It's such a joy to be here with the saints in San Jose. And Father, we pray your blessing on our time as we open up your word. God, we confess our neediness our dependence upon you, understanding that the natural man cannot appraise spiritual things. Lord, we need you. If we're going to understand your truth, if we're going to know its contents, 
and its application for our lives. If we're going to understand the depth of its significance, God, we need you to open our hearts. We need your spirit to illumine us that we might know your truth. And so, Father, please be gracious to us to instruct us in your word. Convict us, Lord, in the areas of our lives that need change and produce that change in us, God. We pray that we would be like clay in your hands. We pray that you give us an eagerness for your truth and that through it, Lord, we might come to know you more. And so, Father, help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, the title to the message this morning is Power Overwhelming. And yes, it's a StarCraft reference. Uh, if, you, if you're taking notes, the, 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 the title is Power Overwhelming. The passage we're looking at is Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. And uh, this is part of Paul's prayer, which he begins in verse 15, when he says that, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which is, exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. And so having walked through in verses 3 through 14, this rich statement of the believer's position in Christ, he then transitions in verses 15 through 23 to pray these things for them, that their understanding of these things would grow more and more. This is actually a pattern that we see in the opening chapters of Ephesians where he walks through the believer's position and then prays. He's going to do the same thing again in chapters 2 and 3 where he walks through the believer's position and then at the end of chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 again he prays for them that they would know these things more and more. And in, in verses 3 through four, uh, 14, when he walks through, you know, our position in Christ, it, it's such a glorious statement. And, and I say statement because, if you know, in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one long run-on sentence. And it's just Paul kind of unpacking this truth that he introduces in verse 3, that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And having said that, he starts to unpack what are some of the blessings that we have, and it's overwhelming. It's like this, you know, snowball coming down the mountain, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just becomes overwhelming, the blessings we have in Christ. And what's crazy is as he walks through it, it's not even comprehensive. We can add to this list. He's just giving us a sampling of every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. And even though it's a long run-on sentence, it's clear that he's not just rambling. There's structure to the passage as he walks through the three persons of the Trinity and how God, the Godhead works in our salvation, whether it's God the Father in eternity past predestining us to adoption as sons. And you have that section in verses 3 through 6 that centers around that one thought that God has chosen us. Or whether he focuses on God the Son in verses three, uh, 7 through 13, and talks about how in the Son we have been redeemed, or whether he talks about God the Spirit in verses uh, 13 and 14, and how we have been sealed with his Spirit, the Apostle Paul certainly has structure to what he's talking about, and is unpacking this theology for us, and having done that, then seals it all in prayer, and prays to the Father on behalf of the church, not only giving thanks for them, for their salvation, but also praying that these truths would be cemented in their hearts more and more. And this morning, we're going to be looking at just the tail end 
of his prayer for the saints at, at Ephesus in verses 19 through 23, where he wants especially for the church to understand the power that is at their disposal because of who they are in Christ. It's a conversation that we oftentimes have when we're children. We have kids here. I think we have kids here, right? And maybe you know, if you have icebreakers at church or you're introducing a new group of people or whatever, you usually have that, that special question, right? Say your name, where you're from. And, and one special question, one question I love to ask is if you could have any superpower, what would you want it to be? If you could have any superpower, what would you want it to be? And obviously it's a, you know, a fictional thought and it's not going to actually happen, so you can't get too excited about it. And, and I don't know, I, I wonder, like, would you be creepy? You know, would you want to, like, be invisible? Creep, right? Like, that's weird, right? <laughs> or, or would you want to be creepy and, like, be able to read people's minds? That's weird, right? Uh, I, I've always thought I'd want to fly. You know, how cool would that be to be able to fly on my own? Or to tra- teleport from one place to the next, except that if I had that ability, I'd probably be, like, 600 pounds. Uh, and and th- it's kind of a fun thing to kind of think through. If you could choose any one superpower, what would it be? I had one friend who said, I would want that superpower that would suck up everyone else's superpowers and incorporate them into me. And I'm like, yeah, you think that's a loophole, but what if you're the only one with superpowers? Then you're a loser, right? So, <laughs> so we were kind of just kind of thinking through what this is. And obviously, like I said, that's a fictional thought. It's just you know, something we just imagine and we think it would be cool. But Paul is not speaking fiction here. When he talks about the power that we have in Christ, this is something that is real. And our passage this morning talks about the amazing, unlimited spiritual power that is at our disposal. And even just introducing that thought, it makes us wonder then, if we have such power, why is it that so many Christians live day to day as if they lack spiritual power? And maybe it helps to understand what that spiritual power is not, right? Like having God's spiritual power doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and we just wait for him to do everything. It's not some kind of weird let go and let God kind of mentality. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, when Paul talks about his ministry, he talks about how he labors and he toils. But he does that in accordance with the power of God that's working in him. And so having the power of God doesn't mean that you don't labor. It doesn't mean that you don't toil. So what does it mean that we have spiritual power? I think it helps us also to understand how we demonstrate a lack of that power in our lives so that we at least can identify it. Because when we are not tuned in to our Lord and when we're not tapping into that spiritual power, what does that look like in our lives? Well, it looks like doubt. Doubting the Lord, doubting his work. Certainly there are times in ministry where I can get weary in the work, you know. There are certain, certainly times where we're ministering that we, we grow weary and fatigued doing the work of ministry. But do you get weary of the work? Are you resigned to defeat? Spiritually speaking, are you ready to throw in the towel? Are you, are you at a place in your life where you've just stopped fighting sin? Or that you easily give in to temptation? Do you refuse to pray? Do you find yourself constantly striving in your own strength? These are ways that we demonstrate in our lives that we really don't understand the power of God that he's given to us in his son. 
And so this morning, I want to look at this passage, and we're going to identify two keys. Two keys to understanding this spiritual power that we have in Christ. Two keys to understanding this spiritual power that we have in Christ. And the first we see just in the first verse, in verse 19, and the second we'll see in verses 20 to 23. But the first key that we see to understanding spiritual power from verse 19 is really God's provision of that power. The provision of God's power. In verse 19, uh, he says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Because he had prayed, in verse 18, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then, having talked about that surpassing greatness of power, he expands that thought from the end of verse 19 through verse 23. Paul's prayer essentially is this. I want the church to have three things in mind. I want them to understand these things. His one prayer request, if you could boil it all down to one word, is that he wants the church to know. But what specifically does he want them to know? He wants them to know the hope of God's calling. He wants them to know the riches of God's inheritance. And he wants them to know the surpassing greatness of God's power. And if you think through that prayer request, there is a past element to it in that he wants them to know the past calling that God had on their lives. He wants them to understand a future element and the inheritance of God that, they, that awaits them in the future. But there's also this present element with present application. He wants them to know the surpassing greatness of the power of God. I love that statement, surpassing greatness. Maybe, I don't know, today's the video game uh, sermon. But it just kind of reminds me of something out of a video game or something out of anime. Because that, that term, surpassing greatness, is hooperballon megathos. I mean, it just sounds powerful, right? Hooperballon megathos, right? It sounds like a, like, a, like a powerful spell or something. It's just this surpassing Greatness. It's not just the greatness of God's power, but the surpassing greatness of God's power. That word power, do not miss. And I know some pastors have tied it to our English word dynamite. That obviously wasn't in the mind of Paul because it hadn't been invented yet. But it has the idea of God's ability, God's power. We speak about God's omnipotence. That he is all-powerful. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It says this, that I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And that word Almighty there in Revelation 19 literally means all-powerful. Our God is all-powerful. And Paul prays that the church would come to know the surpassing greatness of the, the hooperballon, megathos, of God's dunamis. That the surpassing greatness of God's power. This idea of dunamis, commentators agree, deals with God's ability to work out his plan, his ability to do great things. And, and, and so some commentators explain it this way, that God's dunamis 
can be looked upon kind of like his potential energy. It's his ability to work out all the things that he purposes to do. That there's no one that's going to thwart God's plan. There's no one that's going to thwart God's power. That's his dunamis, his, his potential energy. But when you're talking about the outworking of that power, there's another Greek word, energeon. Energeon, from which we get our English word, energy. This is the word that Paul uses in verse 19 when he says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. That word working is the verb form, energeo, or the, the noun form, energea, of this, of this term. God is working out his dunamis. He is energeoing his dunamis. He is working out that power. And we get to see that. And Paul doesn't even stop there. And I know I'm giving you a lot of Greek, but it's going somewhere. Because he's working it out according to the strength of his might. That word strength is kratos. From which we, we get words like democracy. At the end of that word, krusy, that, that's tied to the Greek word kratos, which means power, power to the people. That's the idea behind this word. And the word might, iskus, I don't know if we have a parallel in the English, is just another synonym for power or might or strength. So that when you put all of these things together, this is essentially what the Apostle Paul is praying. I pray that you would understand the surpassing greatness. The hooperballon megathoughts, right? I hope that you would understand the surpassing greatness of the power of God that he is powerfully working out according to his powerful power. It's a powerful verse. It's a powerful verse underscoring the strength of our God. The power of our God. How do we know that God is powerful? Besides the fact that that's his title, God. When, we, when you consider that one truth, that God is God and I am not. I mean, even if you were to go out into this world and ask people, you know, what does it mean that this term God, what, what does that evoke into your, into your brain and generally speaking, one of the thoughts that almost anyone would agree with is that he's powerful. But we don't have to rely on our own intuition for that. We have biblical testimony that obviously God is powerful and that that power has been demonstrated and has been worked out for us to see. This is why Romans 1 talks about his power, his divine power being clearly seen through the things that have been made. From the opening pages of Scripture, we encounter that divine power. When he speaks by the word of his power, let there be light, and immediately creation complies. Let there be light, and there was light. And he demonstrates his infinite power in all the things that, has, that have been made. We also understand not only God has demonstrated his power through the things that he's, been, that he's made, but he also demonstrates that power through his sustaining of that creation. Like we read in passages like Hebrews 1, verse 3, where it says, He, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. So the things that are on this earth hold together because Christ in his 
infinite power is holding these things together. We've seen Christ demonstrate divine power through the things that he was able to do. Whether it was casting out evil spirits or whether it was walking on water or feeding the multitudes, Christ demonstrating again and again his power and his authority over the whole created realm. Who else, sleeping in the boat, before he even really has time to wipe the sleep from his eyes, could get up and say, peace, be still, to the storm, to the waves and the wind, and immediately they understand and obey. And the sea is still. I explained that to the church, that it wasn't just that the storm stopped. It wasn't just that the storm stopped, because if the storm stopped, the water would just continue to roll. Every molecule of water heeded the call of Christ to be still, and it didn't just calm the storm, but it calmed the sea, and immediately everything was still. So the disciples marveled and feared at the power that was with them in the boat. Although God possesses unlimited, infinite power, I think it's also important to explain that his omnipotence, his all-powerful quality doesn't mean that he can do anything. This is something that Oftentimes, those who object to this idea of God being all-powerful will throw out, can God create a rock so big that he can't carry it? Can God make a square triangle? Is he really all-powerful if he can't do things like that? And I usually stop them. I say, well, why stop there? There's other things the Bible says he can't do. Like in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, when it tells us that he can't lie. God can't lie. Or in 2 Timothy 2.13 where it says that even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. And that's exactly the point. That he won't do, that he can't do anything contrary to who he is. He is God and so he can't not be God. He is God. And so he won't do anything to deny himself. He is love, so he won't not be loved. Like he, he won't contradict who he is. His omnipotence speaks to his ability to accomplish all of his purposes. His omnipotence speak, speaks to the fact that no plan of his will ever be thwarted. His omnipotence speaks to the fact that no force could possibly overpower him. And although God has revealed his might through his creating power, through his sustaining power, though Christ revealed that power through the mighty deeds that he was able to do, then we can argue that the greatest demonstration of the power of God was seen through Christ in his death and his resurrection. And this is why the Apostle Paul uses that word again in verse 20. If you're following along in the NASB, it says that, They would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working energia uh, energia of the strength of his might, 
which he brought about, verse 20, which is the verb form, and ergeo, of the word that we saw in the previous verse. And so not only does God have this potential energy, the possession of power, the ability to do all things according to his purpose, now we've seen that worked out. And more specifically, where have we seen that worked out? And that's what he walks through in verses 20 through 23. And we'll get there. But this is the point that Paul prays that the church would know the surpassing greatness of God's power according to the power of the powerful power, according to the working of the strength of his might. Which leads us to the obvious question. Do you trust in the power of God? Do you trust in the power of God? One way that we specifically demonstrate our trust in the power of God is through our prayers. It's through our prayers. I, I think about our culture today with all the tragedies that we've seen in recent years. Especially the loss of life. And you've seen some people in the media scorn at the idea. They've even said it publicly. What we don't want are your thoughts and prayers. We want action. We want change. And I understand that sometimes when we tell people that our thoughts and our prayers are with them, that we mean it simply as a, a mere sentiment. But for us who are in Christ, who understand the power of God, we also understand that our prayers are no small thing. That there's no greater thing we can do for someone than to pray for them. That when they say that they don't want our thoughts and our prayers, what they are essentially saying is that I would rather have something that is infinitesimally smaller and weaker The efforts of man to bring about change are infinitely weaker and smaller than the power of God. And when we don't pray, we demonstrate that we don't care to tap in to that power. Prayerlessness is one of the surefire ways that we demonstrate Self-reliance. Because a person who fails to pray essentially is relying on his own power. As we consider the so many testimonies of God's power in Scripture, that he has done mighty things. And the Scriptures testify to it again and again and again it leads us to the question, how have you, as a believer in Christ, understood and experienced the power of God in your life? And I'll tell you, for many people, it leaves them sort of at a loss. Have I experienced that power? I love that the Apostle Paul continues. It brings us to the second point. It's not just the provision of God's power, but in verses 20 to 23, specifically, that demonstration. The demonstration of God's power. When it says, he brought it about in Christ. 
when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul uses that verb, energeo, here. Again, flowing out of the previous passage. Not only does God have that potential energy, but we also see his kinetic energy. The working out of that power. And how specifically has God worked out his power? He walks through four ways. As he completes this chapter here, he walks through four ways that God demonstrates this power. And he begins by saying that he raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power of God demonstrated. That he brought it about, that he energeoed it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Which is obviously a miracle of divine power. Whether we're talking about Christ's own resurrection... Or whether we're talking about how God, in his divine power, raised others from the dead. I think about John 11. When Jesus is told that your friend Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. And Jesus, upon hearing it, instead of rushing to Bethany to be at the side of his friend, or to possibly heal him, delays So that Lazarus dies. And he says, okay, let's make our way to visit our friend. And they come to Bethany. And Mary and Martha, full of faith, understanding that Jesus has the power of God, say to him, Lord, if only you had come sooner. You see, they believed in Jesus' power to heal But it brings up this point, and you know, we've had loss of life down in San Diego. And especially during this COVID season, we've had family members die. I had an uncle in Chicago pass away. And if there's anything that would make us feel our mortality and our weakness and our limitedness, it's death. If there's anything that would remind us of our frailty, it's that death comes to us all. And it's not guaranteed that it comes to us when we're old. Young people die. If there's anything that underscores how limited we are, it's this. And on the flip side then, if there's anything that would demonstrate the unlimited power of God, is it not his ability to raise the dead? Because Jesus says, roll away the stone. In John 11, and Martha, being very astute, makes the statement, but Lord, behold, he stinketh. Right? Not only has he died, Jesus, but now he's started to decompose. But in obedience to Jesus, they roll away the stone and he cries out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And you know the story. Lazarus comes walking out of the grave in a demonstration of remarkable power. When we think about Jesus' resurrection, obviously, 
a demonstration, likewise, of the infinite power of God. But also related, a related idea to God's power is God's authority. And I think about what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 10. When when he talks about how he has the authority to lay down his life. And he also has the authority to take it up again. God in power raised Jesus up from the dead in demonstration of his power and in demonstration of that ultimate authority. And he doesn't stop there. There's a second demonstration of God's power, not just the resurrection of his son, but secondly, that he seated him at his right hand. It says that in verse 20, that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. As we read through the scriptures, sometimes you come across verses that are so obviously emphatic that it seems like they're surrounded by like bright lights. You know, it's like God has supernaturally highlighted this verse. I I think about verses like Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and talking about our own depravity, that every thought of man was only evil continually. I mean, it's just like bright lights. It's like God's own highlighter. How How much more can I emphasize the sinfulness of man? But when we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, that's emphasis. That's emphasis. I love the fact, this little detail, that Jesus assumes his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Why is that significant? Because biblically speaking, the right hand is the position of power. Do you remember a guy from the book of Judges? I know it's Old Testament, so don't lose, don't lose me here, okay? A guy from the Old Testament named Ehud. Do you remember him? Uh, maybe it'll, it'll start to get familiar. There's a guy named Ehud who was a judge of Israel Israel being oppressed by their enemies cries out to God for deliverance and God provides that deliverance through his judges and one of them was Ehud. And Ehud is famous for one particular thing. There was a king, big fat king named Eglon. Remember him? Eglon, the big fat king. And there was one remarkable trait about Ehud that the Bible brings attention to. What was it? He was a southpaw, right? He was left-handed, which meant that he sheathed his sword on the other side. So that when the guards went to pat him down, there was no sword customarily where it would normally be. And so he, he gains access to the king. And you know the story. Sorry for the graphics, parents. But he stabs the king through the gut. And the king is so fat that the fat closes around the hilt of the dagger. Gross! And uh, he escapes. And God delivers Israel Because the power of Ehud was in the wrong hand. He was left-handed. It reminds me 
of what Moses sings. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 6, this is after the plagues. This is after the Red Sea. This is after Passover. They have been delivered. And in Exodus 15, Moses is compelled to sing a song to God. And I love, upon experiencing the mighty power of God to deliver, in verse 6 he sings this, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It reminds me what the psalmist says. I think it's Psalm 12. When he refers to God as the shade, Yahweh is the shade at my right hand. It's the position of power that the psalmist essentially is saying, I don't have to be powerful. My right hand can be flimsy and weak. Why? Because Yahweh himself is the shade at my right hand. And when Jesus ascends to the Father, he assumes his rightful place at the right hand of God, the position of authority and the position of power. Why authority? Because the next verse tells us it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named. Commentators are, are generally agreed upon that when he talks about these rules and, and authorities and powers, that these are generally understood as angelic ranks. It's similar to what he says later on in chapter 6 and, and verse 12. When he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That when we think about the angelic world and the majestic angels, whether we're talking about righteous angels or fallen angels, that Christ assumes his seat at the seat of power above all rulers and powers and authority above all dominions, right? But not just that, far above. Far above all of them. And not just that. Far above every name that is to be named. I think about that statement. And how the ambition of this world, and, and maybe even for some of us, is to make a name for ourselves. Right? We want to make an imprint on this world so that when we're gone, we're not forgotten. What kind of impact, what kind of legacy can I leave? What kind of name will I have? And when you think about this world and when you think about this culture, yeah, there are some pretty impressive names. Whether we're talking about our sports heroes, or whether we're talking about Hollywood celebrities, or whether we're talking about governmental leaders, or whatever, there are some pretty impressive names. And we read books about these people. We read their names, we know their names, and we know details about their lives. And I just love this, because as much as we strive to make a name for ourselves, Christ's name is far greater. Christ's name is far greater. It's something I tell the church in, in San Diego that I am tempted, I am tempted to put it into my will that when I die, 
that I would have an unmarked grave. Simply put on my gravestone, here lies one who followed Christ. Or something like that. Because let the name of Patrick fade away. Let the name of Christ be exalted. I'm not saying having your name on your tombstone is a wrong thing. I mean, for identification purposes. Right? It's okay. But I just love that idea. Isn't it consistent with what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2? That Christ humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says, for this reason also, starting in verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All this to say, you might have an impressive name, but Jesus is always greater. Jesus' name is far greater than any name. It continues in verse 22. It says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the third way that God demonstrates that power through Christ. Not only by raising him from the dead, not only seating him at his rightful place, at the right hand of the Father. And, and, and now he talks about how he has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. It's, a, it's an interesting verse. An interesting passage. Because it seems as though what the Apostle Paul is doing here is quoting Psalm 8. If you want to turn back there, look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is an interesting psalm, I say, because this passage is not necessarily talking about the Messiah. In Psalm 8, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And the, and the psalmist David here is just in awe of the majesty of God and his divine power. And he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, he says, what is man that you have thought of him what is man, what is the son of man that you care for him? And yet, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. I say it's interesting because the Apostle Paul uses this passage from Psalm 8, which is clearly talking about man and the psalmist just astonished at the majesty of God and his power and saying, what, who are we that you would even give thought of us and yet you have put all things in subjection to us. And of course he's talking about Genesis 1. When God created Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and what? Subdue it. That God in his amazing grace even being the God of majestic power and glory and dominion, the creator of all things, graciously, not only created us in his image, 
but commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And as the psalmist thinks of that, he's just in awe, astonished that God would, in a sense, exalt us to that position of authority. Paul uses this passage and applies it to Christ. Because while the psalmist is astonished that God would ever give us that kind of authority, Paul is not astonished. Paul is essentially saying Jesus rightfully assumes that authority and that power. And so what's the connection? I believe at least part of the connection comes in Genesis chapter 3. Because Adam and Eve fall into sin. And having been commanded to fill the earth and to subdue it, the tables sort of turn. And rather, having authority, rather than having authority over all of creation, now as sinners living in a fallen world, we're at the mercy of creation. As we experience the natural disasters and the storms of the sea and things like that, but Christ, the sinless one, not only is given this dominion and this authority, but he retains it and is not fallen like us. He maintains possession of it and rightfully sits at the right hand of the Father and rightfully has all of creation subjected to him. He is the one who can command the storm to be still and the storm is compelled to obey. We don't have that power. If that's you or me, we die. And that's bad news for me because I'm a bad swimmer. I oftentimes say I, I can tread water for maybe 10 seconds and then I die. So if I were to fall overboard, I don't even think I would try because why die tired? You know? Just take me home, Lord. This is, this is the way. He put all things in subjection under his feet because Jesus is the greater Adam who possesses and maintains possession of that authority over all creation. The Apostle Paul goes from talking about the angelic realm to all of creation, and I love that because we see the fulfillment of it when we get to the book of Revelation. Any music people? You guys like music? Any choir people? I was a choir person. I took like every choir class at UCSD. I just love singing. If you look at Revelation 4 and 5, I just love how this is all unfolding in that future final day when the Apostle John gets this vision of heaven. And it starts off by saying, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And he hears this voice saying, come up here, let me show you what's going to take place. And as it all unfolds, it begins with worship. It begins with worship. And I mentioned music because there's a crescendo. There's clearly a crescendo. As you read through the songs in Revelation 4 and 5, the volume starts to increase. It starts with the four living creatures. In chapter 4 and verse 8, where it says, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, 
who was and who is and who is to come. It starts with these four voices, the four living creatures around the throne of God singing praises to him. And upon hearing that praise, the 24 elders begin to sing in verses 9 through 11. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders who will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so the four living creatures having sung, now the 24 elders take over. And they cry out, worthy are you, O God. It gets louder. Because in chapter 5, in verse 8, it says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So now it goes from four to 24. And then the four and the 24 sing together. You are worthy. You're worthy. It gets louder. Because in verses 11 through 12, it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing, and then it just explodes, and every created thing, which is in the heavens, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. As all of creation sings praise to the Lamb and glory to his name, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be in that choir. And in dramatic fashion, all the voices cut out. And the four living creatures continually say, Amen. There's such drama in Revelation 4 and 5 when it comes to the praise of God, and especially God the Son, for what he has done for us. The point is that Jesus is Lord over all. He's given the name above every name so that appropriately, Every living thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them will rightfully give praise to him because he's worthy. Finally, going back to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul concludes this thought of the demonstration of God's power through the Son by saying that he gave him his head Over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's the fourth way that God demonstrates that power. That authority is that he gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church. 
Because the church is his body. And it's probably the most well-known analogy about the church in the scriptures. That we are the body of Christ. And when I think about that, my mind immediately goes to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That talks about how we are all individually members. Distinct from one another. Various giftedness. Various applications. You're not me and I'm not you. And you know there are things that you're really good at that I can't do. And there are things that God has given you to do that he hasn't given me to do. But as we've all functioned together in the unity of the body, then we represent the fullness of what we are in Christ. And oftentimes when we hear about this analogy that we are the body of Christ, the emphasis is exactly that. The emphasis is on the unity that we have as a body. But here in Ephesians 1, rather than focusing on us, Paul's focus is on the head, who is Christ, who fills all, in all, the fullness of him. Christ is the head. And he's going to repeat this thought in chapter 4. He's going to repeat it again in chapter 5. And it reminds me of the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Because if Jesus, in power, has been raised from the dead, and if Jesus, in power, has been seated at the right hand of the Father far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And if Jesus has all of creation subjected to him under his feet, then certainly, when it comes to our life in the church, he has authority over you and he has authority over me. Do you see how he's narrowing it down? kind of zeroing in on you and your heart. And do you understand the power of God that he's demonstrated in his son? And I wish we could come back and keep going through this because when you get to chapter 2, he talks about how we've been dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He doesn't stop there. Not only has he raised us up together with him, but he's also seated us together with him in the heavenly places. Do you understand that Ephesians 2 flows out of Ephesians 1 and the demonstration of the power of God, connecting it to us, our lives, our experience as those who are redeemed. That just as Christ has powerfully been raised from the dead, we too in union with him have been raised up together in power. And just as God in his power seated Christ at his right hand in majesty, we who are in Christ are seated together with him. That this is the power that works in us. And that is at our disposal. And I love the one observation. That is, Paul prays through this notice that Paul doesn't say, God, give them this power. Now, what does he pray? 
if you could boil it all down to one word, it's no. He doesn't say, God, give them this power. Why? Because we already have it in Christ. He just prays that the church would come to understand it and know it more and more and more. Because as he said at the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 3, that in Christ God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, such that in this Christian walk, when we find ourselves failing, when we find ourselves struggling, when we find ourselves weak, the one place that we cannot go to blame is to God. We can't possibly say, God, you did not give me enough to persevere. Essentially what Paul is praying is if only you understood the breadth of this power. Consider the strength you would have. Because this power is not our own. It's not some, you know, just muster up the strength. Just, it's not the power of positive thinking. It's not, you know, having a resolute mind it's not this I can do it, you know, if I really try kind of mentality. How do we have access to this power? It's only through Christ. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there is no way you have access to this power. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. He says to the Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolishness to this world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That we understand this power and we've experienced this power because we who are in Christ have been raised from the dead. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses. Spiritually, absolutely incapable of doing anything to merit any favor with God. I was lost and hopeless and weak and dying. And it's God in his mercy who transformed me and changed me. He forgave me of my sins and gave me new life in his son. So that not only have I gone from death to life, and not only have I gone from sinner to saint, and not only have I gone from guilty to forgiven, but I've also gone from absolutely incapable to capable. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But by his grace, I'm his child by faith. And folks, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, this is the only hope that we have. The only hope of redemption. The only hope of forgiveness. It's only found in his son. 
It's only in Christ that we can have the forgiveness of sins. It's only in Christ that we can have a right relationship with God. It's only in Christ that we can have a hope for heaven. And everything else, every other religion, every other effort, every other so-called gospel is infinitely weak in comparison to the power of God. So that it's absolute futility to think that I could earn my way into his favor or do enough good things, be charitable enough, be kind enough. It's absolute futility that my own efforts could get me there because of how weak I am. But God powerfully works in us to save us. Every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. We show that we're not tapping into his power. We show that we are not tapping into his power. When we doubt him, when we doubt his work, when we grow weary of the work, of the walk, when we resign ourselves to defeat and throw in the towel, when we stop fighting sin and so easily give in to temptation, when we refuse to pray, when we strive in our own strength. But folks, Christianity, I remember going to the Czech Republic and talking to some of the people there and how they would scorn at us who were Christians. Why? Because their conclusion is that Christianity, it's for the weak. It's a crutch. That's all it is. I have everything I could possibly want. Why would I need Jesus? And maybe you've heard that testimony because it's common. We hear it here. Paul helps us to understand Christianity. It's for the powerful. And it's not because we have power in and of ourselves. Remember Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians when he was dealing with that thorn in his flesh three times asking God, would you remove this thorn? And God says, no, I'm not going to remove it. Why? Because my power is perfected in your weakness. That God doesn't sit there waiting for us to be strong on our own. He can be strong through us. And again, it doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do nothing. Paul says that I, 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 this, for this reason I labor and I toil. I, I agonizomai and I copiao, right? I, I, it's from which we get agony and copious. It's not that Paul put, puts forth no effort, but he works hard at it, striving in the strength that God has provide, provided in Christ. Because when I am tapped into the power of God, and when I understand the surpassing power of God for my life, the hooperballon, megathos of his dunamis in my life, it's only then that I overcome temptation. It's then that I resist the devil. 
It's then that I can faithfully walk in righteousness and obedience to his truth. It's only then that I can achieve true spiritual discipline. It's only then that I can break spiritual hab- or sinful habits. It's only then that I can persevere in severe trials. It's only then that I can have the strength in times of my own personal weakness. And as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 about his own ministry, it's only then that I can have assurance that I will fulfill the task that has been assigned to me and fulfill my mission. The point being, we can't do this on our own. But we have at our disposal the hooperbolon megathos of the dunamis of God. And that's incredible. My prayer for you is the same as Paul's for the Ephesians. God, let Lighthouse San Jose, let all the Lighthouse churches come to understand this power more and more in their lives. For the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to look at your word. What a blessing it is. God, we thank you for its sufficiency for its authority, for its necessity in our lives. And we thank you, God, that your word is trustworthy, that we know it to be your truth, and so, God, sanctify us in your truth, we pray. Lord, we pray especially if there's anyone here who really just doesn't know, doesn't understand how you powerfully work within us. They don't know the power of forgiveness. They don't understand the power of salvation, the power of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you be gracious to help them to see and to know the beauty of Christ and the hope of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Patrick, for that sermon and just really reminding us of 